Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. That's his nephew. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That's modern Turkey. He was halfway there when he originally had left Ur the Chaldeans. So he came from Haran. Verse 5. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. And this is the introduction to us of Abram, who's going to dominate and be the key figure for the next 12, 13 chapters as we go forward. He is, of course, the head of the patriarchs. And after Abram comes Isaac, the son of promise, and then Jacob, who God changes his name to Israel. And then from Israel comes his 12 sons, who become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is now a major shift in the book of Genesis, because we go from the pre-flood world and the superhumans and that judgment to the post-flood world and God preserving the genealogy for the Messiah to come. Now, we know through Noah that God preserved humanity. And we saw back with the table of nations in chapter 10, every one of us in this room come from one of those three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. Also in that genealogy that's preserved for us throughout the early parts of Genesis and affirmed to us in the gospel of Luke as well, through the Virgin Mary's genealogy going back to Adam, Jesus to Adam, we have the messianic genealogy. And it is through Abram, that God is going to preserve the messianic promise that a Messiah would come into the world, as was spoken of in Genesis 3.15, who would be bruised in his heel, but would bruise the head of Satan and would provide that redemption. And so as the covenants are progressing, we get the covenant with Adam, then the covenant with Noah, and now with Abram, we're moving toward what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. And then four or 500 years later after Abram, Abraham, will come the Mosaic Covenant when God makes the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai around 1500 B.C., when those descendants of Abraham are an entire nation of millions of people, and then the nation of Israel will be entrusted with the prophets and the word of God and the messianic line through Judah and then ultimately through the house of Jesse and David for Jesus coming into the world as we pick up the record of Jesus in the Gospels. So Abram is the link to Jesus Christ coming through the nation of Israel. And God determined that for 2,000 years in that post-flood world before Christ his son would come, in the progressive revelation of the covenants from Noah to Abraham to Moses, and then ultimately for all of us, which we'll celebrate next week with communion, the new and everlasting covenant through Jesus Christ, that he would give progressive revelation and more insight, more prophecies, typologies, and various other things. We'll get to Melchizedek very shortly, and he's the typology of Jesus coming just around the corner in the book of Genesis.
But Abram is our key guy. Abraham and Sarah. So if I call him Sarai or Abram, Abraham and Sarah, just know that I'm just kind of going the before and after when God does their name changes because I tend to say both. <laughs> so anyways, going forward with Abraham. This ultimately is Abraham responding to the call of God on his life. The upper call of God in Christ Jesus, really. Because we know everything in the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come. So when we think about God appearing to Abraham as Abram and calling him from all that he knew to that which he did not know and that journey of faith and all that he would do through him to bring a son of promise from a woman who could not have children to become a nation by which his word would be preserved and by which the Messiah would come, it was all the call of God on his life, God calling him. And we see the call of God upon men and women throughout the Old and New Testament. You look at Mary in Luke's account, where when the angel Gabriel appeared to her and he laid out the plan, she said, let it be to me as thou hast spoken, the maidservant of the Lord. That was her responding to and submitting to the call of God on her life and what it would entail and how it would affect her life. And we have so many accounts of men and women like this throughout the Bible. Esther going before the king. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. But I'm going before the king. And the Bible is filled with these calls of God. But everything in the Old Testament to the call of God is a shadow of things to come, of really which we find the fullness of when a person in our dispensation or in the church age, we hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, confirming it, and we respond to that message. We receive Christ. As many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And we respond to the call of God. You just go back to the Harvest Crusade, the 30th anniversary of the Harvest Crusade. People that went forward, more than 8,000 people, we could say and we would say they're responding to the call of God as they're responding to the gospel for the first time or a recommitment of their lives to Christ. They're saying, yes, we want Christ. We want to pass from death to life. We want to be saved. And in being saved, we want to fulfill what God has set before us for our lives because there's a plan for every life and that plan is not fulfilled until we respond to the call of God in Christ Jesus. So it's forward, onward, upward in Jesus Christ. So as we have this Old Testament calling on Abram's life, who had become Abraham, we see things that are very applicable for our life that we can take from his context of what God did in his life that we can look at for our life. And so our context and our application tonight is our great calling from the Lord, because really what it comes down to tonight Abraham and Sarai, who became Sarah, they fulfilled their great calling from the Lord. And we know that from the scriptures, both in the Old and the New Testament. Abraham is later called by the prophets years later, the friend of God. Abraham's commended in the book of James and Galatians and other places. Sarah's commended with great admiration in Hebrews 11 as a hero of the faith. So they fulfilled their call of God. They had their timeline and their purposes, but this is our timeline, and as I say so often, our purposes and our opportunities. So tonight, pulling from this call of God on Abraham's life, I want to talk about and the application that we get from this text for the call of God on our lives individually. Some of us are here tonight are married collectively in our marriages because the two are one, and whatever place we're found in tonight in the beauty of singleness with the Lord or being married with the Lord, uh, having children or not having children, or having adult children, and all the variations that we could have. Each of us has a calling from the Lord, and if we're married collectively together. And so we want to talk about this in Jesus' name, what our great calling from the Lord looks like and what we learned from Abraham. 
we see when God came to Abram, it says there in verse 1 that the Lord had said to Abram. So that's a past tense picking up from the previous chapter where he and his father and his entourage of people and possessions that he gathered, they stopped in what is southeast Turkey, Haran, modern Turkey. And they were there for a while until his dad died. And after his dad died, he continued on to the promised land, which begs the question, was that part of God's plan or not? Contextually, you realize in that culture, honoring your parents is the, the highest honor that uh, to be filial in that sense where you that honor of what you do in so many cultures. We talked about this Tuesday night with this text. It's just so important that you honor the ancestors and your forefathers and especially in the Asian cultures in not disgracing the legacy of the family and these things. And, and some cultures, it's just stronger than others. But in the Middle Eastern culture, it is at the highest level. So when God came to Abraham, when he was Abram, and he said to him, this is, the pre- this is the prerequisite. This is self-determination. This is the actions expected in response to the revelation of God. He said to him, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And this is so often the case with the call of God, is God can't really show us what he wants to do until we move on from what he wants us to let go of. He can't fill our lives with the blessings that he has for us in the new chapter until we let go of the and bring the completion of the previous chapter. Of course, we know if anyone's in Christ, or a new creation, old things have passed away, all things are new. And we know that when Christ calls a man or calls a woman to himself, that he is Lord, and that involves supremacy over all things. So this is the first thing I want to talk about tonight in his call in our life, is that Jesus Christ commands and expects supremacy over our entire life our holistic person, our spirit, mind, and body. Billy Graham said for decades and decades around the world with so many translators, Jesus Christ is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And that supremacy of Christ, his authority over our life is reasonable. It is honorable because God's way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven and is a shield to all who trust in him. We're made by Christ and for Christ. We're held together by Christ, this entire universe, including you and I tonight. He is the atomic glue holding all of us together, including the matter that is our bodies in this time and space that we occupy right now. He is our creator, but when we choose to receive Christ as our Savior for our sins, he is not just Savior, but he's Savior and Lord. And we see Jesus' teaching in the New Testament when he calls people that he calls with full supremacy as Lord for their life. When he walked by Matthew in the tax collecting booth, he said, follow me. And Matthew left his vocation that moment, his whole identity, his livelihood, everything. We don't know if he was married or whatever, but when Jesus walked by and said, follow me, he let it go immediately. And Jesus was Lord of his life, and he had the meal, the dinner, we invited all of his friends to hang out with Jesus, because Jesus was his Lord. When Jesus called Peter, John, and James from the fishing business, he said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And we know that Peter and Andrew left their business. We actually know that in Luke's account, Jesus was teaching in Peter's boat. And Jesus said, drop your nets on the side here. And Peter goes, you know, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything, but 
you're the captain of the ship, so at your request we'll do this. And the nets were filled with the fish, and Peter looked at Jesus, and he said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. John and James, the sons of Zebedee, they walked away from the business that day. And we don't know what went on before that between them and Jesus. There's some things we know, like Andrew had listened to Jesus and came to Peter and said, could this be the Messiah? There's things that tell us stuff, but at that point, he became Lord of their lives. And even when his teachings were hard, he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said there in John chapter 6, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. They were all in. Recently, I watched a very entertaining series uh, looking back at like one of the Chinese dynasties way back in the day. And it's with subtitles, and I like to hear different languages. Just reminds me that Jesus speaks in a lot of languages. And in watching this, it got my attention right away in that Chinese culture, because, of course, many of you know my son Luke is proficient in Mandarin legally and has been to China. And I find different cultures fascinating, having been to Japan a couple times in the last few years. I just I love other cultures. But in this TV series... It involves the emperor and all these people, but something that really got my attention over and over was the homage one paid to the one in authority over them. And so they had this thing like this, where they were constantly going like this, submitting to the authority and recognizing the authority. So before the prime minister, like this, and before the emperor, they're all like this. And I thought, you know, wow, like we do this for men in different cultures. Why could I not do that from my heart for Jesus Christ? Because the great emperors of China and the great kings of England and the great solitans of the Middle East and so on and so forth, they all had, there were men and women, great queens as well. And they had failures and they had power. Hannibal and his armies or Attila the Hun and his armies. All these different people, all these power, Cleopatra and all these different people and the homage that people paid to them. And yet they called them Lord, but these were human beings with sinful natures and their reign was temporal. But we serve Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So God has really ministered to me like, hey, if they go like this for the temple a long time ago in, you know, the, the Tang Dynasty or something, why can I not wake up on September 14th and go, yes, Lord, where would you have me go this day? And what would you have me do? See, we all learn different ways. And that kind of visual is something that like, wow, that's, that's powerful for me. That's lordship. I think we, we have a cheap grace in America. And in 2019, it's very something like, you know, like, Everyone, like seven out of 10 Americans still go to church, but seven out of 10 Americans are not spirit filled. And I've shared this recently when we started the church in Virginia Beach in 1991, when my oldest daughter wasn't even one yet, Hannah, who's now almost 30. God said to me, we're at a critical juncture, and He said, Do you want to pastor a congregation of churchgoers or do you want to make disciples? It's early on in the ministry, first senior pastorate. And I thought, Well, the Great Commission is make disciples. The objective is to make disciples. All those missionaries that have gone out for 2,000 years in Jesus' name, the apostles and those that followed and all these people that went out in Christendom around the world to share the gospel, very few of them went out to make churchgoers. Very few of them went out there to be cool and make a name for themselves. And if they did, they got the beat down. Because if they're sincere, they're going to get a beat down. So it'll be more of Jesus and less of them. China doesn't need Joy Baran. China does, Japan doesn't need Joy Baran. China needs Jesus. Japan needs Jesus. 
It doesn't need you. It needs Jesus in you. And that's the legacy of the great men and women who've changed the world in Jesus' name as they've gone out fulfilling the Great Commission. We have to be all in. We have to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that a servant is not greater than his master. And he said that if we put anyone or any pursuit before him, we're not worthy to be his disciples. Oh, but i got to go first take care of my dad. No, that's, no. Let the dead bury their dead. He said very strong, definitive things, especially in Matthew 10 and throughout Luke's gospel, that make very clear he's Lord of all or not Lord at all. And it's really easy for us to have a convenient biblical Christianity in Orange County in 2019, or anywhere in America, actually, where it's like, yeah, you know, like, we know we're saved by grace. We're seeking the Lord. We're, we go to church a couple times a week. We might listen to K-Wave or whatever, Air One. And, we're, you know, we're, we're making good decisions as a whole, but, like, you know, we kind of can take it or leave it. It, it becomes convenient. But when Jesus called Abram, he said, get out of your family, get out of your country. I mean, he uprooted him from everything he knew, all of his identity and your father's house, all the ancestors before him. Forget about the shield that represents the legacy of your family. Forget about all their accolades or what they did. It's you and me in a new country. And by the way, it was an all in. And until he really acknowledged the Lord first, Everything was at a standstill. It's not till his father died in Haran and he got to the promised land that we read of God speaking to him. We don't read of God speaking to him in Haran. God said in Ur the Chaldeans, get out of your family, get out of your father's house, and get out of your country. And then when he gets to the promised land, the next revelation comes. So my point being of our calling is that there is the supremacy of Jesus Christ needs to be over our entire life to truly fulfill what he has for us. It's one life, it's one opportunity. And it's not about being a churchgoer or a good person or thinking positive thoughts or good vibes or whatever the things that are so popular in this current generation. Or even a stew of mixed religious beliefs, if you will. It is about Jesus Christ, the Savior, having died on the cross for our sins and the Holy Spirit will confirm our need for the saving grace through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will confirm that we've given our life to Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit will press us and move us toward forward, onward, and upward in Jesus' name to the higher calling of Jesus Christ. It is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And what we really need more than anything else in our life is to be all in with Jesus that our consciousness throughout the day and our decision-making is not based upon convenience or safety or security. It's based upon being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and what he's speaking to our heart this day and his lordship over our day and letting him direct our steps. It's literally like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 on a daily basis. Lean not on your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways and let him direct your path. So it really is about being under the Lord. And when it comes something that's difficult or arduous or a trial or a tribulation, how many people check out? I mean, the parable of the soils, Jesus talks about this, the plant that had no depth. And as soon as hard times arose, they were gone. And they talked about the plant that was choked out by the cares of this life. But when you find greatness in the kingdom of God, you find women and men who are completely, totally sold out and for Jesus Christ and under his lordship. And they are cognitively, consciously aware of his presence and his purposes in their life. 
in the fullest sense of the day. And I know many of you live like this, so I'm just reaffirming how you approach your day and how you approach your life. This week I spoke with a number of different people that have done profound things for the Lord, whether it's ministry at the homeless, whether it's having gone to foreign countries as, as American women. And I, I say, how do you do this? And time and time again, it just comes up, you just do it. You just do it. You just do what the master says. He's the Lord. And we want to make sure as we go forward in this journey that he's Lord. Because if he's Lord, we fulfill what he has. If he's not Lord, we can miss what he has. And we can just be churchgoers or religious people. We want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. It's scary sometimes, and it's quite the adventure, but that's the fruit for time and the fruit for eternity. Now, the second thing we see about our calling, so he's supremely over our calling. The second thing is it's his work promised. Look at verse 2. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. He's got our back. So we let him be Lord and master of our life, like Abram did. And we take those steps of faith where we put Jesus before all other pursuits and passions and dreams. We surrender it all. All to thee I surrender. All to thee, O Lord, I surrender. And then we enter into that calling, but it is his work promised in and through us. Because that call of God is a work he's going to do in us by his spirit. And it's a work he's going to do through us to the benefit of humanity. And the people that are most inclined to lose their life to the benefit of other people in Jesus' name are those who are most all in with the Lord in the first place. Because who in their own strength would die to themselves and let others have preeminence over them? It's very contrary to the fallen nature of the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. But when you're a spirit-filled woman or a spirit-filled man and you have to give up your rights, those rights ultimately are given up for humanity in Jesus' name. But then it's to serve others, it's to lose our life in service to winning lives by how we handle things. And again, time and time again, when you look at the lives of people who have not just lived faithfully for the Lord in a Western world environment and just been good stewards, whether they're faithful businessmen or businesswomen or faithful housewives or mothers and things, but greater sacrifices where people are really pulled out of their comfort zone, where you're pulled out of where you live and what you know and where you're whether it's a season of a new adventure, like a new job that takes you out of state and it's new bosses and a whole new situation, or whether it's something more profound where you go to Ethiopia for years and do ministry like our friends Sean uh, Havler did from Worship Generation back in the day at Calvary Costa Mesa, or, or even like David Downs who was very involved with Worship Generation. He was an engineer at UC Irvine, and the Lord just said, you're going to be, his great-grandfather was an Italian citizen, and he worked on his Italian citizenship for years. Eventually, he met his wife, and he pastors the Calvary Chapel in Italy now, and he's very involved in the Calvary Chapel movement in Italy. Him and his wife, Danae, they live there. We support them. He was from Corona, and he had a normal Southern California life like most of us, and he got in at UC Irvine, and he had great grades, and God said, let it go, and now... 15 years later, he's serving the Lord faithfully in Italy, and he's been involved in a number of church plants. That's a pretty big change. I mean, even if it's in your family heritage, like my great-grandmother came from Norway, as did my great-grandfather. I'm actually named after the village they're from. It's Baran, and 
I, it'd be like if the Lord said, now you go to Norway, go down your heritage and change your citizenship to Norwegian, which would be hard to do, and go to a, a profoundly socialist country where things are super expensive, which would also be hard to do, and go to Norway and go do the Euro thing for Jesus' name where the Christian population is very minute and there's still a remnant of Lutheran church influence. But, I mean, that would be pretty radical to do at any time in your life. But you see, when we obey and we go wherever he's telling us to go, the new job, the new change, let go of this job, move toward that one, let go of this house, you're going to rent now, let go of this, move toward that. When we obey the Lord in these things, whether they seem micro or macro, like David Downs, or micro like a job change this year or something like that, as the Lord leads us, the, the blessing is in the obedience because he says, I will make you, I will make you, I will bless you, and you will bless. And really, isn't that what Jesus does in our lives when we obey him and we serve him and we go for what he has for us? He, it's a work he's going to do in us. I will make you. I mean, even when he called, again, Peter and Andrew, John and James, I will make you fishers of men. See, you were thinking like, I can't do this. This is beyond me. Right, it is beyond you. But your availability is everything. When you go back to Hudson Taylor, the founder of the Inland China Mission, to 1850s, 1850s, when he went to China and he obeyed the Lord, all the, there was all kinds of wars. There was a new war every two years in China at that time. And there were the foreign devil dogs and stuff. And he went there for a couple of years. And then he came back to England. And he wrestled with what God might have for him with China. And God was putting on his heart a huge vision. And he had gone for the Chinese dress. He had learned the Chinese, the Mandarin language and the various regional dialects. And he was all in. And he was scared. And God really put on his heart to start a whole new ministry in China. And he took applicants. He spoke at churches all over England. He took applicants from all over the United Kingdom. And eventually he came up with 22 people to go with him. The ship they took was called the Lamel Muir. It was a clipper ship. Now, his first trip to China, he almost died, if you know the story. It was harrowing. He almost died in the Channel Islands right off England. It was a six-month trip to get to China from England on the clipper ships it was for. But he took 22 people who had no professional religious training at all. None were ordained. There were men, there were women. He took nine women, which was very, very unusual for that generation and that timeline. And they got there. And the most amazing thing is, is he was so criticized by the organized religion of Shanghai and the various denominations that were there doing their stuff. And they were all in their gated walls and stuff. And he went right for the inland. They survived two typhoons. They came into port. Another ship came through those typhoons. They lost 20 people in those two typhoons. Not one person was injured in their clipper ship. And most of the people got saved that were the, the sailors on the crew. They immediately went inland, up the, uh, the river from Shanghai, set up a base. And over the next 20 years, almost all of them died in China, including a number of his children. But to this day, that ministry goes on. And it reaches all over Asia to this day. And to this day, a vast majority of the ministry in China can be directly related to the Inland China Mission. You Google and you'll see the pictures of the first group of people that went from Australia, the first group that went from America, and what they did. And it wasn't their ability, but their availability. 
Because they understood what Hudson Taylor understood. I will make you. And when you go, that's where the empowerment comes. He empowers you in the new job. He empowers you in the new relationship. He empowers you in the new neighborhood, in the new community. It's the, it's, it's the going and I will make you. He's not going to make you this side of safety. He's going to make you that side of engagement where the ministry is. And most of those people didn't know Chinese. A lot of them learned Mandarin on the ship, on the clipper when they were going over. It's amazing the legacy that we have in this room tonight by the men and women who've come before us in Jesus' name who simply believed the promises of God were under his lordship of Jesus Christ and they heeded that call. I can't even begin to comprehend what it'd be like to leave England in 19, excuse me, in 18, to leave England in 1856, 57 with this radical young missionary, Hudson Taylor, 22 of you, with no formal education, you were vetted because of your spirit-filled lives and your willingness to go. You can Google Wikipedia, the Lemur 22, and you can see how long they lived, where they died, how many bailed out after two years and switched over to the, uh, you know, the Anglican ministry in, in Shanghai. But how many stayed with it? Some caused division, but when his eight-year-old daughter died, they, it resolved the conflict. Because when you bury an eight-year-old, it kind of makes petty, petty things look pretty petty. His daughter, Grace, then his wife died after 12 years. But they always saw it as a privilege. And they always saw their, their fruit as being what Christ was doing in them. In the book, the famous book, the classic Hudson Taylor, Spiritual Secret, the spiritual secret is abiding in Christ. It's that it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, and it's our availability that brings him working in and through our lives. That's the spiritual secret, which is no secret at all. It's John 15. Abide in me and I in you, and you'll bear much fruit. In a, in a, a religious striving to attain to something, they realize, you know what? We already are it. We just need to have faith in the one who's over us and do what he's called us to do. And trust him when there's a riot in this city or an uprising in that city or a civil war in this territory and we bury this person. And just, it's unbelievable when you, when you really study. And you should study. There's things worth studying. And the Lamel Mayor 22 is worth your time to be inspired. But the point is this. I will make you. And I will make you a blessing. And ultimately, wherever we go in Jesus' name, it's to be a blessing to the people we go to. It's to be a blessing. And you're a foreigner. There was Canaanites in the land when Abram got there. And there's Canaanites wherever we go. And we're foreigners in Jesus' name wherever we go. But we're called to be a blessing. We're called to be a blessing in the new job. We're called to be a blessing at the new school. We're called to be a blessing in the new, with the new team, the new community, the new family, the new neighborhood. We are called to be a blessing. I'm grateful that I have the experiences in my life to have moved thousands of miles from everything I know in Jesus' name, in, the, in Jesus' name to start ministries with people I had previously not known and just go for it. I'm so grateful in my human experience that we went to Virginia with a nine-month-old, a wife that was willing to go, a dog in that car across I-40. And I'm so glad five years later that my wife was willing to go to Vermont in a rider truck, and to get on the 95 and drive through the night and have it burned in Vermont by noon the next day, not knowing how it was going to play out. I am so thankful 
that those experiences are part of my life and the legacy of my marriage and my children. Hudson Taylor had nine children, four made it to adulthood, but all four walk with the Lord. And even recently, his great-grandson was the director of his ministry back in the early 2000s, long after he was gone. See, when we're under his lordship and we're all in and we let him work through us for his good pleasure, he makes us who we're meant to be like him and we become the blessing. We're blessed and we become the blessing and we bless everything we do as a whole. It's our disposition to bless. We're not perfect, but the legacy is we're blessing. And that's what the call of God in our life is, that we wouldn't be Joey Brand in the flesh, but we'd be Joey Brand in the spirit and be a blessing. So insert your name. It's the same thing, that we'd be a blessing. I'm glad we got to go to Virginia Beach and bless the people of Hampton Roads. We still have great relationships with some of those people. The woman who said she'd never have children because it was an inconvenience had nine of them. We had lunch with them a couple months ago down in Carlsbad. Just serving the Lord faithfully still. All those people, all those stories. You get one life, and it's meant to be live for Jesus and to be transformed by Jesus as a blessing to others in Jesus' name. And you can go on the great adventure, or you can watch other people do it. But you only got one chance. Every step Abram took with his wife Sarai was a step in the unknown. By faith, Abram obeyed and went not knowing where he was going. Hebrews 11.8. By faith, obedience, not knowing. Hudson Taylor, at the end of his life, he said this, the older I get, the less I know. You don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. Jeremy Foster left us recently to go to Boise, Idaho. He didn't have it all figured out. Talked to him a couple weeks ago. He's like, you figured it out? He's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. But we have dinner together every night as a family, and we will for the next nine months, so I'm very grateful for that. Otherwise, the software, the engineering, it's, it's moving fast. The game's moving fast. But I do go home at five and have dinner with my family, right? Because we're in it together. So it's him working through us, and we can do all things through Christ because he equips us. Christ who strengthens us. I will bless you. I will do this. I will make you. That's, that's the legacy of the Lord's working in humanity. It's what he's doing in and through us. But that third and final thing we see there in verse 7 that he built an altar to the Lord. And then in verse 8, he pitched his tent. And then again in verse 8, he built an altar and he called on the Lord. He built an altar twice, a place of worship. He was a tent dweller. He's a pilgrim. And he called on the Lord. The most, possibly the most important thing, the most profound thing, significant thing that we see here is that Abram had an eternal perspective. He had that sense and knowledge that he was passing through. Even after God had said this land's for you, he would let his nephew Lot choose the better land. We're going to see that in the next chapter. He was pretty fearless when he rescued Lot. God promised them all of Israel the size of Southern California, a land the size of Southern California, and he never built a house. He never was a homeowner. The only property he ever owned in the sense of the temporal was to bury his wife, which is a story that brings in the first time we see crying in the Bible. He built altars. Altars 
are a form of worship in the Old Testament. He was a worshiper. He acknowledged the Lord over his life. The Lord had called him in Ur the Chaldeans. The Lord was with him in Haran. The Lord spoke to him when he got there, and he built altars. He worshiped the Lord, and he lived in a tent. He was passing through with a very soft touch, just everything that he had, and he had great possessions. I mean, he had great possessions. He had employees. He had hundreds of employees when he went to rescue Lot. He had hundreds of employees that were well-trained militia. They defeated five kings who routed everybody else as they came through the land. And with his 200-plus men, they got him. And they brought everyone back. And then when the king of Sodom says, here, keep it all. It's your plunder. He goes, I don't need to take anything from you because I don't want you to say you made me a wealthy man. I'm not going to take a sandal strap from you. Everything I have is the Lord's, from the Lord. Man, there is so much we're going to learn from this man and his wife. But in the latter part of these verses, we see he had the eternal perspective. We're told to set our mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Jesus told us to store up our treasures in heaven where thieves and moth do not destroy them. For as your treasure is, your heart will be also. And in the end, ultimately, we're to be people of an eternal perspective. And again, Hebrews 11, talking about Abraham, says this, that he looked for the city which had foundation, who this builder and maker was God. Now, the city of David, it's a thousand years later. That's for David and the nation of Israel. Abraham, their patriarch, their forefather, he looked for the city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So in Revelation, when you see the heavenly city, that's the city of Abraham. The, the heavenly Jerusalem. He was passing through, and he inspired his children to be passing through. Remember like when we talked about Noah, that when he built the ark, it was for the saving of his household. And with Abram, it's the same way that his faith inspired his children. And we read in chapter 11, it says that by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. And by the way, Earth's not our home, so it's safe to say we're all pilgrims passing through in Jesus' name. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. You see, he dwelt in tents with the son of promise and the grandson of promise, and he passed that legacy on to his kids. Passing through, pilgrims, sojourners, they enjoyed everything the Lord had for them. And they went through trials and tribulations, suffering, blessings, and tragedy. But they were men and women of faith. And their faith is passed on to us. And the lessons of Abraham and Sarah are our lessons because the principles remain the same. To be fully yielded to Jesus as Lord to understand that our calling is what he's working in and through us, and to realize our calling is an eternal calling. So again, like Philippians 3 says, that we press forward, onward, and upward. And I leave you with one more comment concerning Hudson Taylor. After he lost his wife, it was very difficult when he lost his wife because he just sent the older kids back to England because there was such sickness in China that there was just, it was unlikely the kids were going to make it through the sicknesses that were going on at that time. So they got on a boat far, far away. 
and he stayed behind. And his wife, Marie, had, they had a son, Samuel. But he was so sick, he didn't make it. He died, she died within two weeks of the birth, and then he died. He lost his wife and a two-week-old son in the same stretch. And Hudson's Taylor's spiritual secret was that no matter where he was, no matter what he was doing, he could trust Jesus with everything and that the Lord would never, ever leave him. He compared it to abiding in a house when you're sleeping. If you are abiding in a house, whether you're conscious that you're in the house or not when you're sleeping, you're still abiding in the house. That's not a work, that's grace. It's a position, not an earned thing. And his great spiritual secret, if you will, was that he was no less abiding when he was sleeping than when he was awake. And that the, the great key to the fruitful life that he lived in the Lord with all that he went through was that Christ would never leave him or forsake him. And he was always in the house of the Lord, whether he felt like it or not. So it wasn't what he did in the house, but who he trusted who was over the house to abide. That was Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. One of the most read books in Christendom, by the way, Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. It's amazing. But he said how bitter and painful the anguish was this side of eternity, writing to his mom and to the caretaker of his children in England, who was also part of the, the original uh, Lamel Muir group, the 22, who had gone back with the kids. But he said, should not heaven taste the sweetest of all places when we leave this place? How much sweeter can it be to cross this line of time to step into eternity and see my sweet Marie and my children? Grace and Samuel and the others. The key that closes the deal to fulfilling the call of God is to have the eternal perspective over our lives and all that we do and all who we are. For that is a perspective like a compass pointing north by which every human experience needs to be measured by, knowing that Christ is on the throne and the God of the universe will always do good to those who trust in him. All in, transformed in the journey, forward, onward, upward. It's a great story. I think most of you are writing yours. He's writing it in your life. We don't want to miss it. And at my age right now, at 58, I just think, Whatever the final chapters are, I do not want to miss it. I'm a little nervous about it. I was nervous when I was young. I guess we're always nervous, right? We're always kind of nervous to go for it. You overthink it, you might never go for it. So the best thing you can do is be open to whatever he's saying and not overthink it and go for it.